many of us in our own prayers, and we have here as a church on various occasions prayed for, obviously, our political leaders. We are encouraged, indeed commanded, to do so. And we pray for the Scottish Parliament, for our First Minister, for the government, and for those who serve there. And a number of years ago, they altered what used to happen. The, the House of Commons down in London still begin with um, Christian devotions. Um, but a number of years ago in the Scottish Parliament, it was changed to a time of reflection. The time of it was changed to the afternoon, just after lunch, when they meet for um, their meetings and their debate. And obviously, it was changed in terms of who could come and speak at it. And so it has been widened. And for some ways, we can see why. We don't live in a Christian society in the same way as past days. And so people from different faiths and, and thinkers have come and shared that. But there still is a good number of Christian ministers, pastors, and leaders who do have an opportunity. And this was sent on to me just the other week. It is excellent, and I encourage you to listen to it. The speaker is David Dixon. He's the Associate Minister at Crubbers Close, um, originally a kind of mission hall, but in number, over a number of years has developed into a very strong and vibrant church right there in the centre of Edinburgh on the Royal Mile. And we're going to listen to the time for reflection in the Scottish Parliament as David Dixon speaks. And so over to our, our tech team to do that. Good afternoon. The first item of business is time for reflection. And our time for reflection leader today is Reverend David J. Nixon, Associate Pastor, Carrubbers Christian Centre. Presiding officer, members of the Scottish Parliament, thank you for this opportunity to share a reflection with you. For 140 years, Carrubbers Church has stood halfway up the Royal Mile. Still today, our mission remains the same, to see lives transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, our city bore witness to the funeral procession of Queen Elizabeth II. It was a solemn moment standing at our church doors watching as the coffin drove past, followed by King Charles III on foot. Over the following days, thousands of people formed the phenomenon known as the queue. Thousands of people queued for miles overnight just for a few moments to pay their respects. In interviews, many testified to just feeling magnetically drawn to join the queue. It almost seems that people felt the, the need to be lifted out of the ordinary daily grind and to become part of a historic national event. One journalist reflected, the queue wasn't just about grief, but about our deep need to be part of something bigger. And that's because deep in the human heart and the human psyche, we have this longing to be a part of a bigger story to be part of something more than working nine to five and living for the holidays. The Queen was a Christian. She regularly testified in her Christmas messages that she believed that her life was part of God's bigger story, that she served a higher King, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and King of Kings. Now, often people ask me, if this world is truly God's story, then why is it more a horror story than a happy story? And the Bible says it's because God's creatures have stolen the divine pen, seeking to author our own stories and destinies instead. And in the process, we have left a mess across the pages of human history. Nevertheless, God has looked down upon our chaos and confusion, our misery and meanlessness, the injustice and the inhumanity. And because he loves us, he just couldn't remain at a comfortable distance from it. Instead, Jesus has written himself into the story of this world. He's become one of us. He suffered among us. 
He's died on the cross for us in our sins. He's risen again from the dead, showing that evil does not have to have the last word on any of our lives. That's why the Bible promises, for God so loved the world that he gave us his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This winter, as we face many challenges and anxieties, it is my prayer that many will find fresh hope and help in the true story of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Nixon. Thank you. I hope you'll agree with me that was an excellent presentation of the good news and the hope of that in our contemporary society. Excellent. David Nixon, do pray for him and for the work of Crubbers Close in the very heart of our capital. And of course, speaking before such an august gathering can be daunting. And I'm sure, I don't know David at all, but I'm sure before he got up, there was a degree of nervousness and wondering how people would respond. Um, I do wonder where people like Patrick Harvey, who is a militant atheist and the leader of the Scottish Green Party, I wonder if he even bothered to turn up and to listen to that. But there are people in the Scottish Parliament from different political parties who are ardent in their views against Christianity and his impact, but there also are others who are sympathetic from different traditions of the church. To get up and speak requires a degree of confidence in your message. I know that myself, even though I've been doing this job for a long time now, if I didn't have confidence in the message, I can assure you I wouldn't be standing here or down there or anywhere else in the church on a Sunday morning. And when it's presented as it was in such a concise but clear way with authority within it and with a decisive call to reflect and to respond, then that is meant, and indeed it did, that address did draw our attention not just to the speaker or to the church that he represents, but to the one whom he serves, as our late queen said, Jesus Christ, the King of kings. And that's why it's sad. That's why a thing like that, of course, stands out. That's why it's sad when, in other contexts, religious leaders don't. Without banging people, we're not talking here about banging folk over the head with the Bible. He certainly didn't do that. But do not, with clarity and authority, refer to Christ or to the hope of the gospel. I think there was a sadly missed opportunity at the Queen's funeral and at the service held in St. Giles when the moderator of the General Assembly, a Christian man, he did speak, but those of you who listened to the message certainly did not overly draw attention to the Queen's blessed hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that was sad that that wasn't made clear. The person that we serve, the one that I trust that we know, certainly despite all that he faced on his journey to Jerusalem and the struggles of the Garden of Eden and the torment of the cross and all of that, he knew whom he served and the purpose of it. My will, Jesus said, is to do what my Father desires and intends. And this morning, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11 in this day, and I, I mentioned last week whether it was a day or whether it's been put together for us by Luke in order to represent a day, you can debate about that, that's right in the sense neither here nor there. But this day in the life of Jesus, at the very heart of that day is a very clear 
affirmation of the confidence and authority of Jesus Christ. We've already seen that. If you turn to Luke chapter 11, we've already seen that in the way he responded to the disciples when the disciples at the beginning of that chapter, and we're thinking, considering perhaps it was in the morning when Jesus set aside time to pray in a certain place, and the disciples asked him, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus quite boldly, and if we understood more fully the context of the Jewish faith, to call upon God as Father, although it was there in the Old Testament, it wasn't a common understanding, and certainly not in a personal way. There was that corporate understanding of the fatherly care of God for his people. But here Jesus quite boldly invites them to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. And he goes on to boldly make promises. Verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he goes on to say, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's Jesus speaking about a relationship and a connection with the eternal God that obviously impacts on him and enables him with confidence and with authority to invite his followers to enter into that same relationship, to call upon God as Father in heaven and to ask him, to seek from him and to pray that the door of your opportunity and your understanding will be opened to him and to receive the power of the Spirit. We've already seen the power of God and the authority of God revealed in Jesus Christ and the deliverance of the man from the demon. Jesus, verse 14, was driving out a demon that was mute and when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. He has authority over evil spirits. He is that strong man who comes and nothing, no one, no person, no spirit can defy his power and his authority. And so he's therefore able to say in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And in response to personal response and people saying, oh, you're, you're amazing. And so is the woman who gave birth to you is amazing. And what does Jesus say again with that confidence and quiet assurance? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So this day, in a sense, presents Jesus with authority, with confidence. So let's read on and see what it says. Verse 29 of Luke chapter 11. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. 
we were going through to Stirling yesterday. We were continuing the, the trend that we started, the wee event that we started many years ago at Collins Birthday, which is the first of November. We, for many years, went to Stirling the first Saturday of November. Remember the gold coffee morning being on <laughs> and having to rush away at the end of it in order we could do the needful. Well, we all gathered, Gregor and Sarah and Colin Em and we, Hannah, and ourselves gathered in Stirling. But we thought we were going to be late. Mind you, of course, if we'd been late, it been my fault because I was dithering. Elizabeth says, are you shaved yet? Oh, I'm just going. <laughs> However, we were in good time. We didn't get there in time. But we nearly went because the traffic slowed down at just before we got to Cumbernauld. And me, as the very patient driver that I am, started to mutter and think to herself, how is it our road network and our rail network and our blooming internal flights and everything else is in such a mess? Mutter, mutter, mutter. And it turned out that the reason for the delay and the extensive problem was that there had been a road accident on the other side of the road, just as you pass, going out of Cumberland, really, and just up to, what do you call that bit? Before you get to the big rail bridge, just as you're up the hill down. And the road was, the traffic was off, they were off the road, they were on the, you know, the side bit, so it wasn't up, upholding the traffic on our side. But of course, what happens? People slow down. We all like a bit of a gop. What's happening over there? And although it didn't impinge on our side of the road, didn't impinge on the other side either, actually, but it didn't impinge on our side of the road, there is something in human nature that we like to see. What's going on? Oh, what's happening? Where's that ambulance going? What's happening? Oh. And everything slows down. Well, the crowd here had heard of an incident. And they were nosy, which is understandable, this is part of our character. And they wanted to find out more. And so instead of a traffic queue forming, we're told that the crowd was increasing. As people gathered to gop, to hear, to see, to have a nosy. To have their senses titivated. And there are people, of course, that would even be quite stirred if they saw the ambulance and people would be, oh, look at that, you know. And that is what's happening here. That's the reason why Jesus says this is a wicked generation. It's maybe not the best way to address people you would think in a normal context, but he knows. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows that the people are gathering, not because they're genuinely wanting to find out more about God, about the things of God. They're just inquisitive. They're just nosy. They're just, you know, and the response that Jesus gives, this is a wicked generation that asks for a sign, but none will be given to accept the sign of Jonah. The response forces the listener, even the most nosy, inquisitive, irreligious listener, to think. And to recall, remember Jesus here speaking to a Jewish company. We looked at the story of Jonah some time ago, well, not long ago, just back a few months ago. And we remember the story of Jonah being swallowed by the big fish, not the whale, but the big fish. And he was held within that big fish for three days, then spewed out and vomited out. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. As Jonah was a sign of the Ninevites, and then he goes on to speak about the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. Someone greater than Solomon is here. And even more so, the men and women of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation. What's Jesus saying here? He's challenging the curious passerby to stop and think 
and consider what actually is happening. How vital that is in our contemporary society. It's encouraging. I think there are signs that people are stopping and thinking and reflecting seriously about what really is happening, including the fact that there's chaos on the roads and the rails and the side and dear knows where else. And Jesus is in the business, and we should be in the business. The church should be in the business, and that's why we should have authority and confidence. The church is, is getting people to stop and to think and to consider and to look beneath the surface, not just to nosy and then to move on and different to what we've seen or heard, but actually to consider the serious things that are going on within our wider world, within our society, within the life of the church, and in our own souls. And Jesus here is reminding them, provocatively so to a Jewish audience, that it's the non-Jewish Ninevites and the non-Jewish Queen of Sheba who heard the message of God and repented who for wisdom sought the message of God and believed it's these people who will stand in judgment on the so-called religious Jews of their day and generation. It's always a solemn thought when God's word is shared. Elizabeth and Karen at the issue group on Tuesday we're sharing God's word in a way relevant for the folk there. And that provoked questions. Questions about belief in God and questions about what happens if we don't believe in God and have a relationship with Him. It opens up very delicate issues which have to be very delicately and very wisely answered. We need to pray for Karen, Elizabeth and others who are involved in that ministry. There is a right time and a right place for everything. Of course there is. But nonetheless, whenever God's word is shared, it does go beneath the surface. It cuts through superficiality. It is meant to waken up the, the soporific spirit that dwells within the human heart and causes people to stop and think. And therefore, suppose some MSP or some other official in the Scottish Parliament never ever again, never ever again, seeks out or has an opportunity to hear something of the good news of Jesus. On the day of judgment, that video will be played and the holy, solemn God will say, and what did you do with that message that day? Did you inquire further? Or did you walk away like the crowd and drive on? On that broad road. Not to Stirling. But to hell. Jesus is in the business of wakening people up. And the church of God's calling today in all the different ways in which we evangelize, the public proclamation of the word, the sharing of it in various ways, in various settings, in various situations. Yes, sensitive to them, of course. But nonetheless, in all of that, we need to do so with confidence that God's word does do what is meant to do. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which opens hearts and which causes people and would provoke those who have ears to hear 
and hearts and minds open to consider deep truths. Let me read you again some verses I've read before, some verses which personally I think are some of the most important in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are believed, it's the same, it's the, it's the power of God. To us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And you can read on what Paul says into chapter 2 about that vital understanding. Jesus speaks. And not only are the demons delivered from the man born mute, not only are the wind and the waves commanded and they're still, not only is the dead body of Lazarus raised to life, but you and I and contemporary society are called and are provoked to think and to consider who is this man and how we need to pray within our own family and amongst our circle of friends that they will be provoked to think and to consider who Jesus is. Let's read on, on this day. Verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand to, so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. We are living, are we not, in the time of year when the darkening afternoons are becoming more obvious. The clock has changed. And while it's bright just now, by the time we get to three, half three, four o'clock, it's starting to draw down. And it'll not be long, certainly, as we get into the month of December, that it will be dark by that time. But there is, I don't know if you're not out and about at that time, you might not notice it, but there is something nice and that kind of twilight period late afternoon. And maybe if you're out in the car or even walking in the streets and you see the lights from people's homes, they haven't drawn their curtains yet, they're going to be drawn for long enough. But the, the, so the windows are open, the blinds are open or the shops and the lights are on there and the light comes out and it's not dark outside completely but there's a warmth, a physical warmth almost that you see from the lights coming from inside people's homes and shops and there's, well I don't know if it's just me but I find that quite nice, quite cosy and, and comforting and one's eye is drawn to the light 
and it conveys so much. We might be living going into the darkest part of the year, but light will still shine. Well, Jesus here is drawing our attention to that. If Jesus, if we're provoked to think about who Jesus Christ is and his claims and his promises, then that is like switching on the light in our homes even as it is the twilight outside. And that light, the light of the glory of God, Paul tells us, revealed in Jesus Christ. The light that came into the world, John tells us, and the darkness neither can overcome it, nor does it understand it. That light of life within us shines, or is meant to shine, and illumine how we see ourselves, how we understand our world, how we discern God's purposes, how we experience his presence and his peace, and how we go on to live for him in our lives until in fullness of light we see Jesus Christ face to face. And even as I say that, I, I can sense we all can say, oh yes, that's so true, amen. But we all know that that's not always the case. Uh, we've been told that this coming winter we may well have power cuts. I carried out a little test the other night in my study. I lit the, the, I, the fireplaces open in the study. It's an old fireplace. It doesn't work anymore as a, as a, a real fire. But I, and some who've sat in the study can testify to this, I, I light some candles. It's not just here you have a candle. Um, John Fairfield pulls my leg and says, oh, you and your candles... Mind you, last week he was down at Oriel College um, with Robert Wainwright. And he told me he'd lit more candles last week than he'd ever lit in, the previous, in his previous life. So they have, they have a part. But nonetheless, I lit the ones in the fireplace and, and a couple just to see what the room would be like if we got plunged into darkness. And of course, initially, you can't see very much. You think, well, this is not much. But actually, it's amazing. Like a candle flame how it illumines, so little can illumine so much. I even sat down with a book and put my glasses on. I certainly would need my glasses. But a few more, you wouldn't be able to read. And we might sense that the flame of Jesus, the light of Jesus within our life is not burning as it might. And we may well have to, to carry on the metaphor, attend to the wick and all the rest of it, and ask for the Holy Spirit that we've been told already the Father in heaven will give us to clean the, the lens and the glass of our lives. You can see the metaphors, and I'm sure you're all able to run away with those metaphors yourself. Well, we might well need to do that. We need to remember that the source of light is Jesus. in a world that is dark and in a world of shadowlands of all sorts of philosophies and despair and worry and concern. I was listening to somebody this morning talking about the COP conference and rightly, rightly we are concerned about the environment and we've often spoken about that and creation groaning but he was making the point that the, the, the sending of these people to Egypt and the bills 2,000 pounds a night for a room and the pollution of the plains, and the hot air that's talked for a couple of days, 
Our world is rightly concerned about the calamitous state of creation and the broken state of our society and the fragile state of our economy. Rightly concerned. And the best minds turn their hearts and minds to it. And I have no doubt about that. But without the light of the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, they're still stumbling at best in the twilight of their own ignorance. And we'll walk into darkness and lead our world into it as well. And so, my friend, we need to clean up the lens we need to ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We need to open our eyes. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. Don't hide it under a bowl, but put it on a stand so that those who come in may see that light. This calls for a holy boldness and for a humble willingness allow the nature of Jesus to be seen in us and amongst us as the people of God. And why do we do that? Because there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Let's read on as we draw to a close. The evening is drawing nigh. Well, not yet. Don't worry. It's only 20 to 12. But um, you know what I mean. Let's pick up verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. And just to pause there, not just for hygiene reasons, you can understand that perhaps, but also for religious and ritual reasons. And so he was surprised that Jesus didn't first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, now then you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, he obviously was in the role Jesus this night, wasn't he? And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel 
who was the brother, obviously, of Cain and Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. What are you experts in the law? Because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Now, certainly when you invite people for dinner, you don't expect your dinner guests to insult the hosts. And this is not a biblical warrant for you going into somebody's home and causing a rabbit by saying outrageous or upsetting or disruptful things. But nonetheless, in the context of this, of this day in the life of Jesus, and you can see it opening up with Jesus starting the day quietly, beseeching his Father's grace and wisdom and insight and understanding, so that through that day, both in his miraculous ministry and in his teaching, he reveals something of the majesty and glory of the Father who is in heaven. As you see that day drawing to a close, surrounded by the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the establishment of the church, those who were meant to be in the know, surrounded by them, he does what he's just been speaking about. He casts light into the gloom, the gloom of their hypocrisy, the gloom of holding on to a religion but denying its reality, holding to a form of religion but denying its reality, losing sight of the acts of grace, the means of grace, but also the acts of mercy. And in so doing, bumming themselves up to be something, when actually they're nothing, in fact, worse than nothing. You yourselves have not entered the knowledge of the kingdom, and you are hindering those, Jesus says, who are entering. You see, throughout this chapter, throughout the whole gospel, Jesus is concerned about what is within the prayer at the beginning, invites a very personal response. Notice that we ask for God's forgiveness, but also as we forgive everyone who sins against it. We ask God to help us not to go into temptation. It's a very personal prayer that opens up our hearts to who God is. What we're invited to ask and to seek and to knock about calls for the longings and the desires and the yearnings of our heart to be brought out and to be offered to our Father who is in heaven. The deliverance of the man with the demon from his very being reminds us that we all do need to be delivered. Perhaps not from demons, but from our own fragile and fallen and sinful self. That the calling of the Christian is not simply to hear the word, but to obey the word. We are on this, to be on the side of the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, not on the side of ritualism and establishment and an orthodoxy which is purely of the mind, but does not transform 
the light. If the light of Jesus truly shines within us, and Matthew tells us we are to light our light shine before men and women so they see our good works and not pat us on the back, but give glory to God, our good works are to point to our Father. For in Him, and only by His grace, do we live and move and have our being. A radical call to a transformative relationship, not to a moral outward performance that denies an inward love. And while I have every confidence, I trust within our own fellowship here, that we are not in that place of holding to a form. The day might have been in this church, as in many churches up and down a land where that was the case, Nonetheless, as we hear the challenging words of Jesus as we close, not in the evening, but in the late morning, we need to allow their truth to cast their light on our lives. And perhaps we need to confess before him times when we've allowed ourselves to get in the way of him and his purposes. As I said, Christianity isn't primarily about outward moral restoration. It's about inward transformation. You might have thought it had been better if Jesus had said nothing that night, and often we feel that, and rightly so. We need wisdom to speak. No point causing a rabbi just for the sake of it. But actually, as Jesus has ministered here, the purposes of God are being worked out. How do we see that? We see that because of what we read at the very end. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Already, the climate, the atmosphere that's going to lead to Calvary, is going to lead to the trial before Pilate, is going to lead to him being brought before the Sanhedrin, is going to lead him to being whipped and flayed and the crown of thorns placed on his head, is going to lead him to hanging on that cross and the crowds begging for his death, is going to lead to disaster. who have eyes to see and ears to hear knows know where it leads us to our only saviour I cast my mind to Calvary you know my friends we never walk away from Calvary it stands at the heart not only of human history the very heart of our own lives. And we say, where so a love, so amazing, so divine, such is such love, so amazing, so divine, the demands, my soul, my life, my all. What a day spend with Jesus and what an eternity 
to worship and honor. 